<laughs> Shut up. No time for laughing. No, no, no. A short time ago. Oh, we don't have even time for the theme music. <laughs> Hi, this is uh, the Cold War episode 67. 67. I'm in a hurry because i got places yeah. to be. <clears throat> How are you, Ray? Don't have time to answer that. <laughs> we are going to do... No time for no, uh, friendliness no. or frivolity today. No, 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 no. Today we're going to do a bio episode on Clementine right. Attlee. Right. We're going to double uh, up sure. on Attlee. Yeah. Not sure Clementine was his actual full name, no. but of course it was the name of Churchill's wife, his right. other wife. Ooh. So like me, Winston Churchill had two wives, uh, Clementine <laughs> Churchill and Clement Attlee, his deputy right. PM. Luckily for me, my two wives don't have the same name, so yes. it's slightly more difficult to get them confused. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, as we said at the end of l- the last episode, for the first week or so, they're at the Potsdam Conference. Clement Attlee is there, but no one is paying him any attention because, <laughs> quite frankly, no one ever paid him any attention. Uh, yeah. He was Mr. Invisible. No yeah. one no one, including Clement Attlee, expected that uh, he would win the UK election. <laughs> right. Gain a couple of seats course, maybe, but that's it, yeah. Yeah. We all yeah. know that he did. Um, so, but Whoa. while he was there, he was... He, <coughs> excuse me. He was the deputy PM. And, in fact, uh, he was the first deputy prime minister the UK had ever had. I, I didn't know that previously, Ray. No. Did you uh, understand no. that? No, I mean, I get why they had it, but no, I, I did not know until we uh, started doing this that, yeah, you got to have a backup in case the old round pink fat guy pops off in the middle of a war. You have to have a number two. But they don't do that. That's not the right. British way. Exactly. Apparently. Right. In Australia, we have a deputy prime minister. In America, you have a vice president. Yes. Uh, and, you know, one of their roles is if the PM is or the president, in your case, is incapacitated or, or resigns or he's even out of the country, he or she is out of the country, the deputy stands in and says, yeah, don't worry, I got it, I got this, I know <laughs> got what's going on, it's all good, don't worry, he left me with an envelope with some instructions. I got some crib notes. Um, yeah. 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 But that is not apparently the way it works in the United Kingdom. Now, of course, Attlee was from, not, not from the same political party, as uh, Churchill, uh, Clement Attlee was the leader of the Labor Party. Uh, right. uh, so for those of you not familiar with non-American politics, typically in places like Australia and the United Kingdom, the Labor Party is on the left, mm-hmm. equivalent in some ways to the American Democrats. And uh, Churchill, of course, was with the, uh, at this point, anyway, right. uh, he was with the Tory. He was with yeah. the, the Tories. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, but they don't have the idea. Typically, they, they don't have a deputy PM uh, in the United Kingdom, usually. They can't. They, at times, they do. Typically, they don't. And uh, do you want to explain? Do you want to go into detail why, Ray? 
Yeah, as we'll see um, with the with the elections coming up to uh, right before World or actually after World War Two starts, um, the conservatives aren't aren't able to hold the uh, government on their own after Chamberlain steps down, and gets a vote of no confidence. Uh, Churchill is going to be the one who's leading the uh, Tory party. However, they do not have enough seats. They have to come up with a national government uh, at Lee. Um, to the shock of some, took his party, joined the conservatives, which was gave them enough seats to run to have a national government, and his reward for that was becoming the rare and the first number two. Yeah, but do you want to explain why they don't have a deputy prime minister, generally speaking, in the UK? As far as I understood, it was pretty much black and white. There's our party, there's your party. Uh, I know they have the uh, the shadow government, the opposition but uh, I'm not sure specifically why they've never had this before, except for in times no, of emergencies. Why don't they? No, but why don't they have a deputy prime minister from the same party as the prime minister in the, in the government's party? Like you, you have a oh, vice president. We have saying. a deputy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, my understanding is that the reason being in the UK is only the sovereign the king or queen, the king as it was back in uh, this day, can appoint a prime minister. If you have a deputy who is the prime minister in waiting, it kind of takes away from the authority of the the monarch to appoint the prime minister. You know, you serve at the pleasure. You know, they have an election, but really then, uh, as anyone who's seen the the Churchill film with uh, Gary Oldman, this is out recently, or maybe it's not out yet. No, that's right. It's not out yet. I saw it recently, no. but you haven't, so <laughs> suck on it. Um, but, you know, the Prime Minister, you get elected, face, but then face. you have to go cap yeah. in hand to the King or Queen and say, uh, your, your Majesty, uh, I have been elected. Uh, and then they say, <laughs> okay, well, then I guess you better serve. Um, kiss the <laughs> ring. And uh, no, not the one on my hand. I come over here. Let me drop the royal drawers. Um, so anyway, so I don't know why you can't, I don't know why, um, you can't just go, okay, well, surely the monarch could say, okay, well, I make you prime minister and I make you deputy prime minister and therefore you'll take over if something happens. Can't be that much fucking work. (laughs) I don't know how hard that is, but apparently the argument to, to justify the non-existence of a permanent deputy premiership is that they would be seen as possessing a presumption of succession to the premiership, oh. which would limit the right of the sovereign to no. go, well, ah, 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 not so fucking fast yeah. there. I've changed yeah. my mind. Anyway, I don't know. The fucking British, man. Who can understand the British? I mean, quite frankly, they still have royalty. It's 2017. They still have royalty. Like, how fucking backwards do you have to be? We love you, British listeners. Yeah. But come on, seriously. Get the fuck <clears throat> over the idea of royalty. Will you catch up? Catch up with the rest of the world. What's that you say? Australia still recognises the monarch? Yes, <laughs> we don't want to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> now, yeah, as you say, Attlee was the deputy PM because there was Churchill was running the war ministry uh, and it was a coalition government and he handpicked men from both of the major political parties at that time in the UK. This idea of a war ministry that was bipartisan uh, goes back to at least the First World War when both Asquith and David Lloyd George had a coalition government that was you know, made up of, of both parties, which I know is a, probably a strange concept yeah. to Americans, right? You don't have the concept of a coalition government. 
it's very common in Australia. Uh, our government at the moment is a coalition government. The the Liberal Party, the the party from which our Prime Minister Malcolm Turncoat comes from, is uh, uh, didn't win enough seats in the federal election to hold government by themselves. Mm-hmm. So they have to form an alliance with a smaller party. Uh, the the national parties they're known here, and they're basically a bunch of redneck farmers, and they they can with that with that alliance they can get enough seats to form government. So that's a coalition government. Um, but you don't you know you just because you don't you don't really operate on a um, right. West Westminster parliamentary system. No, the the most that we've done, I think this goes back to Bill Clinton, is normally the president will pick uh, as, as Secretary of Defense somebody from the other party. We've done that for the last couple of administrations, but that is pretty much as far as we go. Obviously, the two sides hate each other. There's a big giant wall between them, and rarely do they get along or agree on anything. But that's been done um, for the last couple of administrations. That's as probably as far as we'll go. Yeah, in in Australia, it would be. I don't think it's ever happened, and it's very unlikely that our two major political parties, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, would form a coalition. There, they are sworn enemies and from completely different sides of the divide. The National Party, though, they they're kind of a bunch of right wing racist nutcases, mostly like the Liberal Party. So you know, they 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 get along. Good. You know, they can they can, you know, they can hate the darkies as equally well, and, and all of that all right. kind of stuff. And the socialists. Hate the darkies and the socialists and the immigrants. Oh, the immigrants. Oh, my God. Taking our jobs. <laughs> Taking our jobs. <clears throat> Bring it down. Coming yeah. in. At the dark of night when no one's looking and stealing our jobs and taking them away and raping them. <laughs> no. Um, now, Attlee had been the leader of the Labor Party for 10 years at this juncture and stayed the leader of the Labor Party for another 10 years. So that's not a bad run. He was the leader of the Labor Party over there for 20 years, from 1935 to 1955. Nice. Now, remember that Churchill himself hated socialists more than he hated wasting a cigar. So it was a pretty remarkable thing that he found a way to work with these guys. And it's something uh, I can respect him mm-hmm. for. He was able to put aside his ideological differences, at least for the period of the war, and work with these guys. As we see when it came to electioneering for this <laughs> campaigning for this election, eh, some of his hatred uh, snuck out <laughs> and he said some completely stupid shit that bit him yeah, on the ass. Yeah. But at least for the period of the war, he had managed to work with them. And, and as far as I can tell, he and Clement Attlee actually uh, got along pretty well and, and there was some mutual respect going on there. Yeah, and not only that, and like you were saying earlier, Attlee truly did handle the detailed organizational work of Parliament. Churchill's the one who's working, working on uh, foreign policy in the war, obviously, but going for as far as back as the Dardanelles campaign, um, Attlee liked Churchill's plan that obviously did not work and blew up in his face. Um, so there was, from from a very early time, at least Attlee respected the military um theorist that Churchill was. So yeah, these guys were able to make it work. So to make a long story short, they they uh, have known each other for a very long time. They were able to make it work. And uh, yeah, like you said, there was a lot of mutual respect. But when the when the election comes up in 1945, it's winner take all and they pretty much go at, go at each other, which we might or might not get to. Yeah, <laughs> well, let's keep it moving. Um, 
Now, before the UK election um, happened, Attlee and Churchill wanted to put it off until after the defeat of Japan. They wanted to finish the Pacific War before they, they yeah. had the election. Um, but it uh, didn't happen that way because some, some other players decided, no, fuck this, let's get rid of Churchill as quickly as possible. Um but right. during the election, we'll get to this in more detail a little bit later. Uh, sorry, during Potsdam, the election had been held, been held in early July, um, but the the results were going to be three weeks late. Three weeks after the election, um, they would get the wow. results. And, and do you know why there was such a, a big delay in getting the results right? Um, I'm, oh yeah, because uh, a lot of servicemen overseas were voting. They had to bring those back and count those as well. And, um, and you can see some really cool YouTube videos on that as far as gathering up all the, uh, paper votes from these soldiers. It was pretty neat stuff. Uh, but yeah, it took a while to, to bring all that back home, count it and, um, and, uh, to be able to officially announce the winner. Yeah, there was actually, I, I saw 3 million troops still overseas uh, during the election, um, a lot of them in yeah. Burma, fighting the Pacific War, and uh, yeah, it took it took time to you know send pigeons uh, over there. To, I think that's how they did it back in those days: pigeons with votes, and the pigeons had to fly back. Right. And you know, it's a long and way. The pigeon, for a pigeon then had to tell them how they um, voted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you know, they would whisper into the pigeon's ear. Because it was a secret vote. vote. Um, <laughs> Now, so on July 25th, the conference, the Potsdam Conference, took a two-day break so the British officials could go back to London and be there for the results. Now, as I mentioned before, everyone, including Attlee and the British communists, expected Churchill yeah. to win. And as you suggested, all that really seemed to be in doubt was how big his majority was going to be. They thought he might lose a few seats, but basically... Yeah. He's yeah. the hero. He's the hero of the war. He's much beloved as a character. He's going to kill it, absolutely right. kill it. The one thing I thought was interesting, and again, we'll go into detail on this, was that pretty much everybody agreed, look, after this war, we have to cut back and we have to look after our own. We have to get everybody jobs. We have to have public works. We have to rebuild. And what's going to happen is, even though everybody's giving lip service to this, the, the British, who are very tired of war, who are very tired of everything— pretty much look at each other and they, they and they acknowledge that of, out of everyone who's made this promise to focus on the masses after the war, the Labour parties are really the only ones who are going to do it. And so when they, they probably don't talk a lot about it, but when they go into the voting booth, they uh, pull the appropriate lever or write it down, however they did back then. And yeah, so it turns out to be this, this very, this very uh, unexpected uh, surprise landslide win for the Labour because the people were tired of worried about Europe. They wanted to be able to focus on themselves. And that that's what the Labour Party promised to do. I think they uh, bit the head off the pigeon and scrawled their answer in pigeon blood <laughs> on the voting forms. So this is, uh, <clears throat> we, yeah, we're here for you. Churchill later wrote that before he left Potsdam to go back to London, he had a nightmare. He wrote, oh. I dreamed that my life was over. I saw it. It was very vivid. My dead body under a white sheet on a table in an empty Damn. room. I recognized my bare feet projecting from under the sheet, and I still had a stogie I was smoking even though I was dead because I'm a fucking man. It was very lifelike. Perhaps this is the end. Um, 
Yes. Now, the the election was a huge surprise. The conservative majority in the House of Commons disappeared. Uh, They went from 585 seats, the Tories, to 213. Damn. Uh, Huge. So um, this means that after the election um, results, Clement Attlee is the one who goes back to Potsdam as Britain's prime minister. And Churchill effectively left the government. Bang, gone. Now, apparently. I'm only 5,000. (laughs) Fuck all, y'all. Churchill briefly apparently thought about returning to Potsdam. (laughs) Right. Awkward. And and, and sort of forcing them to remove him physically. Um, But eventually somebody talked him out of that and he resigned. Now, Attlee did offer Churchill and Sir Anthony Eden, Britain's uh, foreign minister up until this point, up until the election, the chance to return to Potsdam with him to act as advisors because they'd been at Yalta, they'd been at Tehran, they'd been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. (laughs) Uh, Do you know that song's that big in America? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so they uh, he said, "Look, Churchill and Eden, come back. It's okay. Yeah. You can sit on my knee. Uh, <laughs> I'll stick my hand up your butt, move your mouth, <laughs> tell you what to say, uh, and it'll show the world continuity of the British right. system." And they both said, "No, fuck yourself." <laughs> yeah, that would be. I mean, would you like to have Stalin staring at you, pitying you <laughs> even more than he normally does? Oh, you losers! Yeah, no, that would well, be too look, much. It would be very uncomfortable, I agree, yeah. but there's a fuck ton at stake here. Yeah, yeah, and for the good uh, of the country. Atlee hadn't been involved. He's like Truman. He's coming in blind as a bat on this thing, <laughs> and everyone, no one there even knows who he fucking is. They never even right. noticed him before. They were like, oh, look at that empty chair there. They go, no, I'm sitting here. No, I can't see anyone. No, really, I'm here. No. People would sit in the chairs that he was yeah. sitting in. They go, right. I'm sitting here. What? Did you hear something? <laughs> yeah. um, so to go, I mean, uh, I, I do think it's kind of, I mean, understandable, but an act of gross irresponsibility, I think, for Churchill right. and Eden not to go back to at least finish the fucking conference. Like, it's only a week. Just go back. Yeah. Suck yeah, it you, up. Not, suck it up. You don't have anything else to do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, Eden... Eden was ill with a stomach ulcer. His mother right. died. He'd recently yeah. heard that his son died in Burma. Oh, that's right. um, so he's, 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 he's got stuff, um, did yeah. personal stuff. His but plate is full. I got gotcha. you. I'd like to think if it was me, right. I would have gone, go. look, I, I don't want to go back. <laughs> Here we go. I don't want to go back, <laughs> but, right. the, you know, the world no. needs me, quite frankly. Right. Um, but well, they don't want me, so fuck them. That was Churchill's right. uh, position, yeah, on it. And it shouldn't yeah. have been that much of a surprise because no one ever voted for Churchill. No one liked Churchill. <laughs> like he'd never been voted PM. Uh, I mean, he, he used to win his own seat of, of well, I think Woodford was his seat, but no, no one right. really liked him. I mean, for PM, no one ever wanted yeah. him. He was a Emergency, fuck! No one else wants the job. PM, yeah, really? Exactly. It's a bit like it's a bit like how you became the co-host of my podcast. Like, couldn't get couldn't couldn't get anyone good to do it. <laughs> couldn't get anyone smart to do it because hey. they're like work, work with you. Yeah. 
Right. Oh, God, Riley, you're, you're a cunt. We don't want to work with you. <laughs> Ray was like, oh, I what? love cunts. I'll do it. I'll do it. So anyway. 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 <clears throat> yes. So Adley yeah, I, goes to Buckingham Palace to meet the king, George VI. Right. And apparently they're both surprised. And uh, the king actually says, you look quite surprised to have won. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I certainly was, replied Atley. So back to Potsdam. Shall I continue? You want to go back? What happens? To, oh, okay, so everyone at Potsdam, Truman, even Stalin. Stalin apparently said to Churchill before he left to go to London, look, my guys, my spies in <laughs> England, in London, tell me that. You're going to win comfortably, as you should, my good friend, you know, go off and have fun, party, and come back and we'll continue. So they're all absolutely in shock. Here they are, these three guys, Truman, Stalin, and Churchill, negotiating the future of the world, and all of a sudden, Churchill's gone. They just had to deal with Roosevelt dying in the middle of, you know, what's really a series of discussions. They lost one of the three. Now they've lost yep. the second, um, and not to a heart attack or alcoholic poisoning, yep. as you might have expected, but just to the the electorate going, you know what? <laughs> yeah, look, you did okay as a war leader, but you're not the right guy to run the country for the next five years. Um, Admiral Lay wrote in his diary that uh, Churchill's flaws notwithstanding, he didn't think Britain could go on without him. He wrote, it is, in my opinion, a world tragedy. I do not know how the Allies can succeed without the spark of genius in his qualities of leadership. That's a that's a pretty big uh, testimony there, Ray. Yeah. Yeah, coming from an American, it is. Um, and I just want to add something real quick. I just found this in the notes. So you were right. Atlee goes up to the king and he says, I've won the election. And the king says, I know. I heard it on the six o'clock. <laughs> so both, both real spellbinders here. Yeah, no, but, but, but what's going to happen is because Churchill was so bombastic, Atlee doesn't get credit because he has, he has, as we're going to see when we cover his life, however quickly we cover it, this man has seen a lot. He has done a lot. He has touched almost every part of the government there is. So he has got a lot going on upstairs. It's just that his personality is so reserved that co- when you compare him to Churchill, everybody sees him as a, as a non-entity. But he has, he has some gravitas. He has some intelligence and he has a lot of experience. So, uh, again, he he's he's can do more than what you would think. But again, yeah, when you when Churchill leaves the room, this guy walks in who looks like he comes in second in second place in a uh, Patrick Stewart lookalike contest um, with a mustache. Yeah, you're just going to assume that this guy cannot. There's no way he can feel Churchill's shoes. And uh, a little known fact that Churchill that's what he recorded after he left Potsdam, went and started his <laughs> recording career there. So uh yeah, I like your description of Atley. I like to describe him as take Adolf Hitler. Um a right. balding Adolf Hitler who's grown out his mustache for for a couple of weeks. <laughs> just a little bit, little right. bit, little bit wider. Not a full mo, just a Hitler mo with a little right. bit of an edge on it. <clears throat> and then yeah. and <laughs> Hitler's walking around and he goes, you know what, I'm going to stop wearing this this, comb, this stupid fucking comb over because this is ridiculous. I'm just going to, you know, go let the baldy right. show. Um, grow my mow out just a little bit it. while I'm on vacation up in uh, Berkusgarden and then I'm going to steal Himmler's glasses and put Himmler's glasses on. Himmler won't even know. Ah. Yeah. Oh. 
do the South Beach, lose lose about 10 pounds or so because Atlee was rail thin. Yeah, boom, perfect disguise. Boom. And that is fucking Clement Atlee. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Hitler didn't die. He just told everyone his name was Clement Clement Atlee. He became prime. Look at the timing. It's all in the timing, right? Hitler disappears. Hitler was at Potsdam. Hitler disappears in April of 1945. Clement Atlee becomes prime minister. Four, four months later, three months later, May, June, July. So, yeah, I mean, it's That's quite, enough time quite to obvious. Your mustache. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite, yeah, enough time to grow out your mustache, lose the comb over. Uh, <laughs> what really happened is Hitler didn't go to Argentina, as we all assumed. Right. He, he, he was taken to England uh, where they killed Atlee. Right. Churchill, uh, sorry, Hitler just took his place. And became Prime Minister of England. Fuck, that's a good movie. Somebody right. write that down. <laughs> that should be. That's our. That's our. That's our yeah. next move. Is we make that movie. Yeah. Hitler becomes Clement Attlee. That would. Fuck, that's awesome. I love that. Anyway, and then Churchill finds out, and they they battle. Uh, you know, battle royale. Yeah, yeah. They just end up. You know, big fight, Matrix style in a subway. <laughs> Tear up the Prime Minister's office. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's talk about Clement Attlee uh, before we run out of time because i got to go. Um, I know we're only t- – uh, what are we? I don't know. I have no idea how long we're in. We're about half an hour minutes. in. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Half an hour. Clement Attlee uh, was about – his background is about as far removed from Churchill's as you could imagine. He was born into a middle-class family, the seventh of eight children. Eight children. Right. His father was a solicitor. His mother – was the daughter of the secretary for the Art Union of London. So he comes from a good sort of socialisty background. Right. Young Clint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say, so uh, until a certain thing event happens in his life, he had rather conservative views. His father was a solicitor. Uh, but there, but when he runs smack into the reality of life and the and what the poor have to deal with every day, his, his political view, his outward, uh, outward view is certainly going to change because of that. Yeah, okay. So b- before you skip too far ahead, right. he, went to, he went to Oxford where he graduated with a BA with second-class honours in modern history. So we would have got along pretty well. He's a yeah. lefty historian, Clement Attlee. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 would have, we would have got along. In fact, Hit we should get off. him on the show yeah. as a guest, I think. Because right now Let's, he's in Argentina. See if we can get our people to make that happen. <laughs> he's in Argentina. Yeah, when he, when he lost the Prime Minister, he goes, uh, I can snake and fuck this and I'm going back to Argentina. Plan, don't be. cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, after he left Oxford, he, he uh, trained as a barrister, went to his work for his father's firm. Yeah. Um, but didn't like it. In 1906, uh, he became a volunteer at a place called Halleberry House, Haleybury House, which was a, a like a charity for working class boys from Aww. the east end of London. It was run by his old school, right. and he ended up becoming the the manager of this place. Yeah. And uh, you know I, what I read was when he saw the poverty and deprivation of the mm-hmm. slum children, Damn, he man. came to the conclusion that charities would never be able to make a dent in the problem and that what was needed was government intervention. Now this is 
the early 1900s, so 1909, 1910, around this period is where his politics start changing dramatically. He's in his 20s. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it's important for us all to understand that England, like all uh, Western democracies, um, in the early part of the 20th century, it was pretty fucking rough if you were a yeah. working class person. I mean, I, I don't know how many people appreciate how tough it was in the uh, – 100 years ago. 100 years ago, uh, you know, it was it, there was no safety net, no welfare. There was no regulation really on corporations. Right. They would do whatever the fuck they wanted. If you haven't read – Little kids, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to James Caffin about this on Facebook uh, this uh, this morning. Um People's History of the United States. You ever read that, Ray? Uh, yes, I have it a long time ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, little kids working factories, the little little kids, because their hands are so small, uh, got incredible hours, um, just literally collapsing at their work. Uh, there's no no regulations to protect them, to limit their work, that kind of thing. I mean, it was some brutal stuff for for everybody who was not rich. Pretty brutal fucking times. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that people should all read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. In fact, it'd be a great book for us to um, turn into a sh- podcast series at some point to really get an appreciation for how corrupt corporations and governments were uh, a century ago before we started bringing in legislation uh, to, and regulations to stop them being such a punch of pricks. Um, and, uh, you know, good old... Teddy Roosevelt, for all of his flaws, uh, was a major turning point that uh, when during right. when he was president. Um, so anyway, yes, it, it was people had the, the poor, the working class in England had it tough. So he became a socialist, joined the Labor Party, was employed for a time by the UK government, where he rode around the country <laughs> on a bicycle. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he was uh, basically the uh, explainer, the official explainer of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George's National Insurance Act. Obviously, um, a system of health insurance for industrial workers in Great Britain that would be paid for by the employers, the government, the workers themselves. And obviously, it's the beginning of the foundations of the modern welfare state. So he would go around on his bike and he would explain this to the people why this was a good thing. So that's probably why he's so thin, because he tracked in, you know, hundreds of not thousands of miles on some old rickety bicycle. Yeah. But then he gets a promotion. He hangs up the bike. Um, anybody's got all this experience at speaking now. So he becomes a lecturer at the London School of Economics. So good for him. So that's that's right, Americans. Um, the, the British have had a form of universal health care for over a century. <sighs> Fuck. And we're still going, no, no, we can't afford it. We can't. We can afford wars, but we can't afford insurance for everybody in this country. And you, well, see, if you have universal health care, you can't provide massive tax breaks to the rich, right? It's got to be one or the other. You can't have oh, it all. No mm. one asked me. Okay, never mind. Do you know who the first country was to introduce universal health care? No, please tell and me. And when? And when? Your time starts now. Uh, some African country. No, I have no idea. <laughs> some African country. They they seem like good people. I don't know. Germany in 1884 under Bismarck. 
That's right. That's right. Because he because Bismarck took it up to take it away from the enemy as an issue. That's right. Good. Yeah. Good for Germany. And then the British went, well, fuck, if the Germans can have it, we should have it because we can't let the Germans have no. nice things. Um, we should do a bullshit series, uh, fil- uh, series, bullshit filter series on uh, the history of healthcare and universal healthcare right. and welfare. That'd be interesting. The history of welfare. <clears throat> we need anyway, someone to write I- this down and send us an email to remind us. Yes, that and yeah. the plot for the film. Um, yeah. Back to Clem. Uh, so he, yeah. as you said, he was, became a lecturer at the London School of Economics until World War One broke out, tried to join the army, but was rejected because he was too old and he looked like Hitler. And he said, but hold on, no one knows who Hitler is yet. And they said, that's what <laughs> you think. He's still too old. Yeah, he we came back. He was 31. That's yeah. too old. Too old. Who else, too old. Who else was too old when they tried to join? Uh, Truman. Truman, that's right. They're, they're like, no, nope, mm. you're 30 or 31. You're too old, old man. Get out of here. But they both mm. you know, stuck it out, and they were able to eventually get into the armed forces, to the army. I, I hear that um, Atlee shaved his legs and wore a skirt, and that's <laughs> how he – Do what you got to do. Went, yeah. went in disguise. That's how he got in. Um, he ended up at Gallipoli uh, in the Dardanelles, as you said, uh, with my great-grandfather, who was also there. And I think he was the second last person. Yeah, um, from the uh, British contingent anyway to be pulled out of Gallipoli. Now the Gallipoli That's ballsy. invasion, of course, was architected by Winston Churchill, but uh, Attlee was actually apparently a big fan of the idea and had a lot of respect for Churchill as a result. And one of the documentaries I watched, uh, I think it was Attlee's daughter saying that, uh, you know, due to Attlee's respect for Churchill over the Gallipoli campaign, uh, that was sort of the basis of their, their ability to be, to, to, to be friends. I mean, I don't think they were best buddies, but uh, yeah. to get along okay, because there was a mutual respect there. I mean, Attlee respected Churchill because of his vision for the Gallipoli campaign, and Churchill respected Attlee because Attlee respected Churchill. I think that's basically how it <laughs> that's, worked. That's how, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so um, so Churchill, he thought Churchill was a pretty decent military strategist. However, at some point, um, Attlee gets ill with dysentery, has to be put on a ship, but this is how badass he is. He was going to go back to England to recover, but he did not want to go that far. He wanted to be able to get back to his mates and back to the fighting as soon as he could, so he asked to be dropped off in Malta, where he stays in the hospital to recover, and during that time, there's a there's a battle of Sari Bear. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But during that battle, a lot of his comrades are killed. He just happened to not be there because he was legitimately ill with dysentery. By the time he gets back, a lot of his old mates are gone. And that's just got to, you know, be, again, just helps um, shape his character as far as just how hideous war is. So he ends up being injured in Iraq sent back finally to the UK where he recovered, gets promoted to major, uh, spends uh, some time training soldiers over there, and then he ends up the war on the serving on the Western Front in France. Yeah. So, you know, had his fair share of uh, military duty, wartime, ends up uh, going back after the war to the UK, picking up his role, lecturing at the London School of Economics. Then he enters politics becomes the mayor of a place called the Metropolitan Borough of Stepney, which Exciting. at the time was one of London's 
most uh, poor, slummy kind of inner city areas. He becomes the mayor of Stepney in 1919. During his time as mayor, he undertakes a series of actions to basically go after slum landlords who were charging high rents but wouldn't spend (coughs) any money on the property to keep, you know, running water and I don't even know if they had electricity. Fuck. Electricity, kind of stop playing with my balls when I drop them. That's the sound they make when they hit the table. Hands Um, on the table. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he goes after slum landlords and he writes his first book not long after this, The Social Worker, which laid out his political philosophy. And apparently the the main theme of the book, which I haven't read, but I would like to read, the main I, I read a synopsis of it though. Apparently, the main idea of the book is that looking after the poor could not be left to charities or churches or to to voluntary uh, contributions from people. It had to be something that the government took responsibility for. On page thirty, he writes, "In a civilized community." Although it may be composed of self-reliant individuals, there will be some persons who will be unable at some period of their lives to look after themselves. And the question of what is to happen to them may be solved in three ways. They may be neglected. They may be cared for by the organized community as of right. Or they may be left to the goodwill of individuals in the community. He went on later on to say, charity is only possible without loss of dignity between equals. A right established by law, such as that to an old age pension, is less galling than an allowance made by a rich man to a poor one, dependent on his view of the recipient's character and terminable at his caprice. Damn, that's a chock full of common sense right there. Good for Mm. him. Yeah. Um, did you want to analyze that? Cause I wanted to talk about, because, er, cause this is Atlee's story. He's the hero of the story and every hero needs an enemy. And I was going to bring up, uh, Atlee's enemy, but if you wanted to, to talk about, I mean, just when I read that, I was, I was truly impressed about just, you know, he's right. I mean, I don't care who you are at some point in a long life, there's going to be times when you're going to need help and it shouldn't be seen as weakness or whatever to, to, to get help from the government and, or your community. I mean, I, I just was really impressed uh, with that, with that quote. And of course I would argue that one of the defining characteristics of a civilized society is that it does look after the weak and the sick and the elderly and the youth and the people that for whatever reason aren't able to look after themselves and for and not out of a sense of charity either out of a sense of a it's the right thing to do to look after your your community your society the people who for whatever reason get left behind or can't um, cope or or just can't look after themselves. And B, it's out of self-interest because a healthy, well-educated, happy society is in the best interests of everyone. That's been demonstrated. This isn't just philosophy. This has been demonstrated by empirical studies time after time after time. In those sorts of societies, you have less crime, 
you have less agitation in general, and also you have a much greater opportunity that one of those people that gets an education or one of those people who gets the health care and then they have children and those children get an education will go on to to contribute mightily to the society a generation later, maybe in terms of their uh, tax base, maybe in terms of their scientific discoveries, maybe in terms mm-hmm. of their uh, artistic uh, contributions or, you know, whatever it is. It's it's just it's it's a long term investment in your society to look after these people. It's not about bleeding heart charity. It's about an investment in the future health and prosperity of your society. Yeah. I mean, but let's you, not. Yeah. Oh, let's that's get, right. We're doing the we're do, we're doing the fast version. Okay, this is the fast. And let's not let's not get bogged down on that or Morrison. Let's skip Morrison. I say. Oh, but Morrison. Okay, fine. That's fine. fuck Morrison. Hey, Je- 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 yeah, we don't, we don't care about Morrison. He doesn't. He doesn't no, fuck Morrison. Yeah. He doesn't play much okay. of a role. In fuck Morrison. In, okay. Not, fuck Morrison. Nineteen twenty-two, Attlee becomes minister in, uh, in the parliament. Nineteen twenty-four, he becomes the Under Secretary of State for War in a Labor government, the first Labor government, which didn't last very long. And in nineteen twenty-seven, uh, he joins the Royal Commission that's set up to look at granting India independence, which finally happens under his government in 1947. I think that's quite important to realise. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, I think, a little bit later on. But he finally becomes, he becomes leader of the Labor Party in 1935. So in the next few years, he, he fought against building up Britain's army. Right. Feeling that the money was better spent building up the welfare system. Like I said before, you can either have welfare or you can have tax breaks to rich people or you can have a big army. Right. So he said, no, 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 we don't, we don't need a big army. Let's build up the welfare system. But... It, yeah. And, and also, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, and, and he was putting a little too much faith in the League of Nations, as as we all know, or probably should know, uh, yet that's not going to do very much to be able to check Mussolini or, or Hitler. But he was thinking, let's focus on the people. That's what the League of Nations are for, to handle these international incidents. Um, so that was his out for that. But the, the League was just way too weak to handle any yeah, of those. Problems. And who do we have to thank for that? Uh, the Americans? Yeah, pretty much. Um so uh, uh, <laughs> it had a lot of problems, but that was the biggest one. Wilson couldn't get the Americans on board, as we've talked about. Now, but 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 by 1937, um, when he started to recognise that Hitler was going to be a problem, he and the Labour Party disagreed with Chamberlain's policy of appeasement, and he sort of did a 180 yeah. on his position on building up the army. And he said, no, actually, let's get ready for war. So despite the fact that he was a socialist, let me get back. So even though socialists normally are anti-war, uh, by 1937 he recognised uh, that Hitler was probably going to be a problem and that they should get ready for war. Then, of course, in 1940, Chamberlain was out, Churchill was in, created his war ministry, and Attlee, as we said earlier, was the deputy PM. Now, he played a fairly low-key role during the war, mostly behind the scenes. As I think you said earlier, mm-hmm. from what I can gather... Churchill kind of focused on running the war and Attlee's focus was on running the United Kingdom. Is that the sense you got? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, Churchill was doing, he was doing, he was making the decisions with the military cabinet, war cabinet, uh, handling foreign, uh, foreign affairs. However, because of that, Attlee pretty much had his hand into everything in the government. So by the time the war's over, Attlee's got experience in almost every department there is in the government, obviously, which is going to serve him well when he takes over. But he was not just someone who was sitting there waiting for Churchill to die. He was very busy. He was, he kept, he kept, uh, the, uh, parliament running as smooth as he could. And they were able to, uh, come together not argue so much and obviously turn out a lot of war material to give Churchill what he needed. So it was a very smooth running team. Uh, It could have been so much worse, but they really did get along and Natalie did really run everything behind the scenes. Yeah, but as we said earlier, uh, big difference in these two guys. Churchill, obviously, very charismatic in a way, annoying as fuck, but I knew how to give a speech. (laughs) Right. Um, Cut cut quite the dashing figure. Um, particularly when he's dressed in a pinstripe suit, holding a Tommy gun and a cigar. But uh, Attlee, you know, sort of, as I said before, no one even really knew he was there. Beatrice Webb, who we've mentioned before, she was the um, sociologist, economist, socialist, labour historian, social reformer, the woman who first coined the term collective bargaining, was a friend of Ivan Meisky, we, uh, I mentioned Ooh. in an earlier episode, went right. during his... Uh, period in England. She wrote about Attlee in her diary in 1940. He looked and spoke like an insignificant elderly clerk without distinction in the voice, manner or substance of his discourse. To realise that this little non-entity is the parliamentary leader of the Labour Party and presumably the future Prime Minister is pitiable. (laughs) But he was a tiger in the bed. And she was a lefty. So that's when, oh they, when your own people are, when your own people are saying that about you. That's uh, you're a sucky cloth, harsh, right? yeah, yeah. 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 I, I just want to mention. Yeah, go ahead. Unless I should go. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I just want to mention this in, in detail, but I'll keep it short. Um, just to give you an idea of why and how the, the Labour are able to have such a landslide in the election. In 1942, the Beveridge report comes out that pretty much says that it should be the aim of the government to focus on the people after the war is over with by really providing a basis for the for the welfare state. Obviously, all the parties commit to that because you can't not because you would look bad. But everybody felt that at least Labour Party would pretty much follow through on that campaign promise and not just and not just uh, pay it lip service. And the Labour Party's cam- um, theme was let us face the future, you know, going into the election, whereas for the conservatives, they were pretty much all about Well, Churchill got us through the Great War. Um, they were pretty much focused on the past, uh, everything that he had done up to that point. They really weren't thinking about the future. But as you can tell, the people were and they voted accordingly. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, both Attlee and Churchill wanted to postpone the election until Japan had been defeated, but the yeah. other, uh, there were other people in the Labour Party, including Morrison, you mentioned before, who was a senior member and, and Attlee's uh, you know, number one arch-rival, arch-enemy. Right. They kind of had hated each other for decades. Um, <clears throat> they voted, the Labour Party uh, as a body voted to pull out of the coalition. Uh, which meant that the Tories wouldn't have been able to hold power, and so Churchill was forced to call the election for July 5th. Now, it's important to understand that Britain was bankrupt at this point in time. Uh, they had no money. They were borrowing you know, tons of money from the Americans. Uh, Canada. They, 
so they were really, yeah, in Canada, they were really fucked, economically just completely fucked, and had been for a long time. Like, it's important to realise that for the last 25 years, uh, you know, since, well, well before World War One, like I mentioned, that, the, you know, the slum children, all that kind of stuff that uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Attlee had been part of in the early 1900s, uh, Britain had basically been in a depression, particularly after World War One. Their their economy took a big hit. They right. they had seven hundred odd thousand military deaths in World War One, more than twice that number. One point, I think, five million, give or take, wounded, which was a, a sort of wiping out three or four percent of their mm. human capital, and they lost. 10% of their domestic and 24% of their overseas assets in the war and spent over 25% of their GDP on the war, First World War, between 1915 and 1918. So, as you know, we've talked in earlier episodes about the economics of war and, and, and the role of war in economies. And, it you know, wars are often fought for economic reasons, but they also take a huge whack on your economy. And quite often you need to try and figure out how you're going to make that up afterwards. Now, after right. World War One, obviously, Germany owed billions in reparations. We talked about with our recent guest and the Treaty of Versailles and all the problems associated with that. But Britain also owed the US billions in loan repayments after World War One. They also lost a huge percentage of their export trade after World War One to Japan and America. So and then and then of course the Great Depression hit in uh, twenty nine thirty. Thirties were a period of mass unemployment. Of course, as you said, there's no welfare state. There's a lack of housing. People are living in slums. Landlords who own the slums are a bunch of pricks. Um, <laughs> it, the, the the vast a lot of the people, vast majority of people, were doing it tough. Anyone who like my wife has watched Downton Abbey knows that sort of World War One and after were a period of big change where. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the the people that own the Downton Abbeys were like, oh, my gosh, we can't really afford to run this fucking place anymore and look at all those staff. They uppity want rights and stuff. I guess we better let them go. We can't afford them. And <laughs> and, and the, 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 the servants had to go and get jobs. Or during right. the war they figured out that they could do other things. And, and, and so it was a big time of change for England, but economically they were fucked. So as you say, the Beverage Report came out Labor in 1945 campaigned on the theme of let us face the future, uh, saying they were the best party to rebuild Britain after the war. And, uh, you know, the Beveridge Report I found really interesting. I went and I sort of drilled down into that uh, to to get a sense for what he was on about, Lord Beveridge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was basically saying that the state needed to provide welfare for the people from cradle to grave. And they it had to address what he identified as the five giant evils of society: squalor, ignorance, want, idleness, and disease. Yeah. I would have added slave sex children, sex slave children to that, but uh, I think they'd already kind of yeah. handled that one there. You know, that's um, they were working on that. Yeah, maybe that comes under want. <laughs> I don't know. No, I want sex slave children. <laughs> Desire. <laughs> Now, his argument was pretty simple. If the state can provide full employment during war, why can't it do that during peacetime? 
and build houses. You might say, well, because right. drivers broke to do that during the war. You go, yeah, okay, but let's figure it out, right? It's not the only thing that drove mm-hmm. us broke during war. But the, if the state, if this gets back to um, uh, Keynesian economics that we've talked about earlier, military Keynesianism, Keynesianism, and this is Keynesianism, right. I guess. If the state, if it's if it's okay for the state to get involved to ramp up military production during wartime, then why can't the state be involved in ramping up other aspects of society and the economy during peacetime? Now, Churchill, of course, referred to Beveridge as an awful windbag and a dreamer. Ooh. Ooh. You can imagine what he thought about such a socialist idea or as, you know, to, uh, to take care of people. He was, a, he was right. a blue blood aristocracy. Fuck the poor. I'm, I'm rich and that's all that matters, was basically Churchill's policy. Yeah. They and, are where they belong. Yeah, where they yeah. should be. Yeah. Now, his um, campaign centred around him, Fuck the basically. Poor. Oh, sorry. Fuck the the <laughs> so, conservative campaign centred around Churchill being a strong war leader. It was personality over policy. The media backed Churchill and claimed he would win, um, especially Lord Beaverbrook, who was the original Rupert Murdoch. He'd owned uh, the largest selling newspaper in the world back then. He personally took over editing of the paper during the election oh. and basically made it into a propaganda arm of the Tory, the Tory party. The bookies had the Tories five to one to win. But doesn't but, that make you feel good? I mean, the, the papers are for him. A lot of people are expecting the conservatives to win, and the people said, no, fuck this, and they got out and they voted. I mean, that, if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what does. Mm. Churchill did I just uh, make a couple... He made up a couple of fuck-ups, including the speech where he said that uh, in order for a future Labor government to implement their policies, they'd have to set up some kind of a Gestapo. Oh, God. Uh, Here's a clip. My friends, I must tell you that a socialist policy is abhorrent to the British ideas of freedom. No socialist government could afford to allow free, sharp, or violently worded expressions of public discontent. They would have to fall back on some form of Gestapo, no doubt very humanely directed. To say that to a valued colleague, to say that it was a Gestapo for the Labour Party after they'd worked together for the war, that was reprehensible, and I think it was a grave mistake on Churchill's part. That's Clement Attlee's daughter at the end in the commentary. Yeah, now, Churchill's own daughter on that same documentary said she thought her father had lost touch when yeah. it came to domestic politics. You know, and I can understand this. After five years of being the man, sitting around tables, yeah. eating caviar and drinking champagne and thumping your fist with Stalin and Roosevelt and Truman, he'd become a lot more blunt, I think. Right. But let's face it, the guy had never been popular in the first place, as I said earlier. Um, he was an emergency uh, PM, and uh, you know, really, he yeah, just his arrogance. Yeah. his arrogance came to the fore during yeah. this campaign. There was um, a great uh, video. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, I think I mentioned it on the last episode actually when he's uh, surveying the troops in Berlin and uh, right. before Potsdam, and and they're all <laughs> shouting out Atley, Atley, Atley. Yeah. I saw another yeah. rally that he did where people started booing him and he said, 
I've come up with a new name for the party. We'll call it the Booing Party. Okay, <laughs> get, get it out of your system. You do it a little bit more. And he starts joking around, telling them to boo him more. Anyway, um, got to wrap this up. So Labor won by a huge landslide. They won 47.7% of the vote compared to the Conservatives, only 36%. Whew. And um, as you said... Attlee went to see the King. King said, I know, I heard it on the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> um, and, and Eden was out, obviously, as Foreign Secretary. Ernest Bevan, who was another socialist, but a vir- virile, not viral, virile <laughs> anti-communist, right. uh, was the new Foreign Secretary. Ouch. And Churchill, well, his, at least his worst fears didn't come true. He wasn't dead. Right. And he wouldn't be the man to see the sun set on the British Empire. That honour would go to Attlee and Bevan. Right. So I want to uh, wrap up just by thanking our new subscribers, our new heroes, uh, recent ones. Defcon 1, Andrew Knight, Ingrid Vwisso, Taylor Jackson, Neville Mosey, James Delaney, Shan Huang, Mark Meyer, Dave Lane, Josh Keogh, Armando Carlos, Tristan Lewis, Dave Churnside, George Button, Kevin Brewer, Michael Leese, Grant Lloyd, Wolf Lorian, Jesse Proctor, Alexander Curtis, Ryan Dial, and Jan Ingerman. Hello. Uh, DEFCON 2, Kimberly Berry, and DEFCON 3, Jacob Dunn. Golf clap for those people. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Uh, thanks, guys. I've really got to run. i got a meeting that I'm running late to. Uh, we'll be back soon with more of Potsdam. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, ball boys. I'm out. Yeah, don't have time for that. <laughs>